I think it's a testament to my generation when constantly I go on Twitter, I see things like healing and trauma. Some people kind of say, oh, you lot, you Gen Z guys are doing way too much. But no, I think it's a quite a positive sign. You know, we're talking about healing and trauma. We're saying not repeating the same mistake. So joining us today, we have the amazing Dr. Camilla. Camilla, is it Camilla, sir? Camilla. Camilla, Camilla, <laughs> who is an expert in what we're about to talk about today. So yeah, first and foremost, what is trauma? Ooh, so, well, thank you first for inviting me. And I actually am not of the opinion that your generation is doing too much. I think you okay, exactly <laughs> what needs to be done. So this question of, of trauma, what I've mentioned before is that there are some words that sort of make their way into sort of general and casual conversation. And so they yeah. might lose their technical or clinical meaning. But mm-hmm. essentially, trauma could be an event that someone experiences or witnesses, right? So even if it doesn't mm-hmm. directly happen to you, but you witness an event that is basically overwhelming in the sense okay. that you feel powerless to prevent it, that it might happen repeatedly or unexpectedly, and you don't have sort of mm. the emotional or kind of tangible resources to cope with how difficult and painful and challenging that event was. So that's a very broad, you know, kind of definition. Yeah. But ultimately, so given that it's a broad definition, that means that it, it'll be dependent on the individual. Right. So it could be mm-hmm. something that you witness and you're you're startled, right? Mm-hmm. That you're afraid, that you feel overwhelmed, that you feel alone. And so included in that definition or inherent in it is a lack of safety. Right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if something is you feel unsafe, you feel fearful, those kind of emotions also tend to overwhelm you emotionally. Right. And so we that's when yeah. we get this kind of flight or freeze or fight or freeze response because your your mind your body is just overwhelmed trying to process what is happening and so for many people they understand perhaps trauma we might call it with a with a big t right so yes war or violence things that that happen that are undeniably traumatic Mm -hmm. or kind of fear inducing but there's also traumas with a small t right and that could be the loss of someone unexpectedly that could be witnessing something really mm. powerfully negative happen to someone else and you cannot prevent wow. it right and so if we think about the world that we live in now right we can social see media especially especially social media you know the difference is perhaps from other generations is that you have access to the ability to witness traumatic events happen in real time all around the world, right? And this was not the case previously, right? You might have local news or even if something happened, it took so long for that news to travel that, Mm -hmm. you know, you might've been a bit more prepared. But now we log into any social media platform and you have news from Myanmar, you have news from Palestine, you have news from from Zimbabwe and all of it, right? You're able to witness and still feel very powerless right, to do things, but, to do so anything the question, about it. Sorry to interject, but yeah, no. the question then is, what is said about my generation? And obviously this is me acting as a proxy. I don't believe this, but me acting mm-hmm. as a proxy. 
are we just a bunch of crybabies? Whereas you hear like people from like who are in much older than I am, they'll say things like, oh, well, you know, in my days, we just got on with it. Mm. We had a stiff upper lip and just got on with it. Mm -hmm. We lot just want to complain about everything now. What would you say about that as someone who's in that field? You know what? I would say that the way that our or previous generations may have coped was honestly with extreme denial, right? And, Mm. And feeling like the recognition of that trauma was a luxury right? Because survival was a priority. And so Mm -hmm. now there's a greater recognition and expression of what is being witnessed and what is being felt. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, at times what I tend to believe is that our sort of glorification of that resilience, right? Of that, you know, just keep a stiff upper lip and keep moving and and go forward is actually a trauma response, right? Of paralysis, of just the inability to recognize the pain that is being experienced because of the fear of being continually overwhelmed by it. Wow. Right. So I I think, you know, sometimes we admire like, oh, wow, they just seem to be able to move through so many painful experiences, whether it was war or migration or, you know, economic sort of pressures, and they just got on with it. Right. I would argue that they have not. They just have not recognized it. It's still there. So then what would be some typical characteristics of someone who's suffering from trauma or has trauma? Right. So often it is the aversion to even speaking of it, Mm. right? So anything could be a very innocent question. Perhaps you might ask your parents or your grandparents, right? So what contributed to us like moving to this place or being here, right? And, you know, they will just say, well, why should we talk about that? Right. Or it, it doesn't matter. It's it's over. It's in the past. Right. And so yeah. this rigidity and reluctance to even speak of certain events, right, is it can be indicative of trauma. Wow. It could be in the how unwilling or inflexible, right, certain people might be to acknowledging even the pain of others. Right. Wow. Because it can become a mirror. Right. If I acknowledge your pain, then I might have to acknowledge my own. And Mm -hmm. I am not ready to Mm -hmm. do that. And I don't feel equipped to even begin to process how those things impacted me. So you you see sort of this emotional numbing, right? Sometimes it it looks like apathy. It looks like I will refuse to express any emotion other than sort of strength and resilience and sort of fortitude and stoicism. Okay. Because if I acknowledge that, then does that mean that I'm a victim? Does that mean that mm. I have been, I have suffered in a way that I couldn't control, right? And so that that lack of vulnerability and not wanting to even be in that space, right, could also be yeah. indicative of, of someone who's experienced a trauma. Yeah. And then how important would you say that it's, it is for someone to have go through therapy? Oh, I mean, I recommend it for everyone. Okay. You know, it just I'm with you. I saw a meme that says when I hit the jackpot, me and my boys, I'm taking all my boys to therapy. And I thought, hell yeah, that's that's a goal. That's a, we speak about all these goals about having men who say, oh, you know, I want to have a house with this many women or whatever it may be. Yes. But really and truly, I think, you know what? Before you continue damaging other people, why don't you work on yourself? That's a real goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, what a gift would that be for someone to say, you know what? I just came upon all this money and I'm going to pay for healing for all of my friends. Right. I mean, what what a gift. Right. And so I think one, I would say that even contemplating therapy or counseling for people is also very frightening. 
And as a psychologist, I think there's often we talked about the stigma attached to mental health, right? But what I would say is, is that my experience have been that many people of color, especially are very willing, right? To Mm. go through a process of healing. What we are not willing to do is be vulnerable perhaps to those who have been our oppressors. I was just, you read my mind. I think you're more than a psychologist. I think you have the skill of telepathy as well. (laughs) I was just about to say how important me as a black man to go to a black therapist, for example. I tweeted about this in January. I remember I was about to make dinner and I just said, you know, for people of color who are looking for a competent Mm -hmm. therapist, one of the first questions you should ask, right? Just even in an initial kind of consultation is to ask that person, white and, and a person of color, what are your thoughts about the psychological impact of racism and oppression, right? And, and wait for an answer, right? Because the answer will tell you a lot that you need to know about potentially what that experience will be with that person. If that therapist, especially if they're white, answers in a way that either minimizes or exposes their lack of awareness of how important that is and just how impacted we are by white supremacy, by oppression, by anti-Black racism, by colonization, if they have not considered, right, the the deep impacts of of those systems, then truly will they be able to help guide you to a place where you can understand not just sort of your own personal vulnerabilities, but historical Mm -hmm. and intergenerational trauma as well. So I think that what we need, especially as people of color, are those that understand the systems that we in that are not designed for us to be well, right? Yes. White supremacy is designed, right, intentionally and purposefully to keep us sick, right? To keep us yep. in a state of believing messages of inferiority and believing that we have no power. And so when you mm-hmm. think about trauma as an event that happens perhaps repeatedly and unexpectedly and leads to harm that is overwhelming, right? That could be daily microaggressions. That could be just being so consciously aware of the ways that you are systematically subjugated, right? And so this is is beyond sort of like your own abilities and capabilities and talents and skills, right? You can be a highly educated, intelligent, aware person and still have to contend with the systems that are designed to keep you subjugated, right? 100%. And, and so when you come into therapy and you're sitting with someone who looks like the oppressor, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? in more Girl. ways than one, right? Yeah. Then how it, it is, it is a matter of instinct, right? That you will say, why should I trust this person? Right? Why mm. should I open up and, and explore um, the kinds of experiences that I've had with you? when you look like the very people who harm me on a daily basis and have also harmed my ancestors have harmed the people in my life, right? That's a legitimate question to ask. So I I think it's it's actually kind of a misnomer, this idea that black folks don't go to therapy. Like, you know, we just, no, we don't want to go to therapy with you. (laughs) I think that's very valid. But then on the point of finding someone that looks like you, yeah. which I think is extreme, I think it's very important. I mean, I've always yeah. I heard Snoop Dogg say something like, <laughs> no, I went to a white therapist because I didn't want someone who knew me as Snoop Dogg. I wanted yeah. someone who doesn't know me as, as a celebrity. I mean, that, we can how, kind of unpack how that. he makes his money. 
said, okay, well, I, I need to know how you're defining the problem and the issue that's bringing you here. I want to get to know a little bit more about, so it, it becomes, I want you to share your story first, right? Yeah. Sometimes people come and they think, okay, I'm here, fix me. Right. But Mm, yeah, yeah. It is a fact that you are the expert on your own life. Right. I'm going Mm -hmm. to play the role as a guide, facilitator. I'll ask questions because I I believe in the wisdom that you already have about yourself. Right. And kind of drawing Mm. that out. And so there are probably more questions that are asked than sort of advice giving. Right. So that is the kind of therapy that I do. Others want something that's more solution focused and very cognitive, like help me change these thoughts, which are maladaptive, right? Mm. Okay. That could be one strategy, right? To help. But I think the insight is very important for people to one, feel empowered and to also know that now that I understand what's happening to me, I have so many more options, right? For how I'm going to cope, right? And so in that, what I think people should, should know to expect is that this is also a relationship. So it's, mm. it's a relationship that's very different, right? Because it's, there's an inherent lack of reciprocity, right? You're not going yeah. to get to know much about me and, and my personal life. Yeah. One, because that frees you of an obligation to care for me in that way. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? Like if you sat down with your therapist and they were like, oh my gosh, I had such a horrible day yesterday. <laughs> and you know, you'd be like, um... <laughs> But I really trust you now to like pour out my, my issues and my problems. Exactly. So that is actually liberating, right? There is an expectation of care, but it's care for you. It's centered around your needs, your concerns, you know, your ability, your strengths, but also the things that you need in order to be healthier. Right. And so I I think that's where sometimes it feels really awkward. And people are like, well, I yeah. kind of want to know more about you, right, as a person. But what I would argue is that you will get to know me as a person, right, by the way that I treat you, by the questions that I ask, right, like yeah. by by how present I am mm-hmm. with you and how I pay attention. And so mm-hmm. that should be comforting. I think what is hard for many people initially in the therapeutic process is that vulnerability. Yeah right? Like you're a stranger. And, and I tell people, I'm a stranger. So if I ask you a question and you're not ready to answer it, tell me that, Yeah. right? Yeah. And that yeah. I will always say, you know, I'm going to ask you a difficult question and, you know, or, or perhaps offer an interpretation based on my observations or things that you've shared with me. Tell me if I'm wrong, Wow. right? So what I do yeah. constantly is to reassure the person who's sitting with me, Right. That they have control of the pace, right, of what Mm -hmm. they disclose that, yes, Mm -hmm. I am the expert in this particular subject, but I am not the expert of their lives. And so if if they start to feel like I don't think I'm ready to kind of go into that area or talk about those memories, then I say, then you're absolutely right. Trust yourself. Right. Trust that maybe this is maybe too much too soon. And trust that when I kind of push you a little bit, it's because I believe that you can explore Mm. that area and, but you need to do it with support. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's such an amazing insight to what therapy entails. And I hope people who are listening do take that advice on board. And I feel it can be a very liberating experience. But you you mentioned the story you tell yourself. Yes. Immediately what came to mind was, how much weight do you feel words of affirmation have and do they work and would you encourage it? So 
it, it depends on the person, right? And so okay. you or your listeners might be familiar with sort of these love languages, right? So yes. words of affirmation and acts of service, physical touch. Um, so yeah. it will depend on the person and it will also depend on the kinds of experiences that they've had, you know, whether that's traumatic, whether that's nurturing and healthy. And so there is a generation that, you know, will say, I never, you know, my parents never said they loved me, right? Yes. And again, for some, maybe they weren't parented that way. Mm-hmm. I, I saw someone tweeted some time ago, like black parents will say something like, they won't say, I love you. They'll say, try this on. hundred <laughs> percent. What do you want from McDonald's? Right. Um, <laughs> or, or they'll just make something, you know, that's your, your favorite for dinner. Right. So those yes. are sort of acts of service. And now perhaps we're moving to a, to a place where people do want sort of that verbal affirmation. Yeah. And it does feel good, right? Because it helps mm-hmm. you feel seen, you know, to be validated in that way. I, I was just about to ask, what is it about human beings and the want to be validated? Why do human beings seek validation? Oh, I mean, from an evolutionary standpoint, it is because we are, our chances of survival alone yeah. are very, very low, right? Mm, if, yeah. if you are alone and by yourself, the likelihood that you will survive right, is drastically Mm -hmm. reduced. We cannot, Mm -hmm. right? We must be connected. We have to feel like we belong as part of, I think, a larger collective, but also that we're cared for, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we're seeking that validation, you know, some people say, well, you know, I just want to be self-reliant. I don't need anyone. And those people, I'm always like, oh, boo-boo, you need to come to therapy. (laughs) (laughs) We all have the need to be, you know, to have that sense of belonging, right? And to be valued, right? To be an Could could it ever become an unhealthy obsession, though? Yes, it can. Like like clout chasing now. I think Mm -hmm. there's a difference between validation and my personal experience. For me personally, of course, I like to feel validated by those who I love. Yes. However, as for those I don't know, I think it's very, I don't give a, I don't really care. <laughs> I'm honest. I don't, I find, I find it very weird. That, okay. You think this of me. Well, I don't know you. You, especially in the world of social media. Yes. I feel like if, as long as my real life relationships are healthy, then mm-hmm. who cares what people think of you online? Because they don't know you. Right. Well, I mean, see, so again, I think that's the difference why we cannot compare generations in this way. Because for older generations, you were known locally, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And now there are people that assume sort of a certain degree of familiarity and intimacy based on your public yeah. persona, right? Yes. And some people encourage that, right? And others, they may strategically sort of present themselves a certain way publicly, but have like a yeah. very, you know, clear boundaries about their their private life, right? Their intimate yep. space. And so I, I think where it becomes unhealthy is the lens that people will go to receive validation from anyone and everyone. Yeah. Right? So that's I where find it that extreme, to, yeah, extremely strange. Yes. And that might be indicative of sort of a need in their own lives that has mm-hmm. gone unfulfilled, right? Mm-hmm. Or wanting sort of public validation to hide the fact that they are unable to maintain or sustain intimate relationships privately. Wow. Right. And so it is not unheard of for people to have thousands and thousands of followers and be incredibly lonely. Of course. Right. And so it is understanding who are we connected to where we feel safe. Right. We feel 
that we can be our true selves, right? As we understand it in that moment, right? Because who, yes. who you believe yourself to be changes over time. And I think also the place, you know, where I often ask people to think about their, their trauma and their sense of safety and trust is who are you with when your body feels most relaxed? Mm. Right? Like you don't sense the tension. You're not sort of doing what's called like high self monitor. You're not kind of monitoring yes. what you say, how you say it. And so it could be the people that you laugh the loudest around. Right? Okay. I mean, for me personally, that's one thing I really, really love about yeah. being with Black people, right? Is the laughter. <laughs> yeah, for real. Right? I mean, it's, yep. just, it's, yep. it's just, <laughs> it, it sounds beautiful to me. It's just so yep. unself conscious. Right. And so when I think about the people who I feel safest around, my body is relaxed, I can be my true self, it's people who look like me. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that's for many, many different reasons. Right. And yeah. so when we think about like the validation that we receive when we're with those people that we trust and love, it is because yeah. it it reminds us of, you know, I, I think a word that we don't use enough is like who adores you. Mm, right not just loves you but they just like adore you and cherish you and just just simply your presence kind of makes them smile and they really look forward to it they feel joyous right I mean everyone deserves to be in the company of people right right how do you balance that then between the validation that comes from others but then surely there's like a time where you need to be able to be by yourself and be comfortable so I I think where I challenge that a bit is in kind of like Western notions of individualism, okay. right? Yep. And we, you know, as a psychologist kind of have to balance that when we're working with people of color from collectivistic societies, right? And mm-hmm. so yep. I think there's often an, an emphasis, right, in the West on self-reliance and individualism yeah. and that you are an entity separate and apart from everything else. And yep. as a Muslim, right, I, as, as a black Muslim, I believe yeah. that there is so much value in connection, right? And so where I think the balance has to kind of be straddled is, do I feel sort of lost and bereft and forgotten if I'm alone, right? Because that, mm-hmm. that is indicative of a story that I'm telling about myself, okay. right? So if I am alone, right, can I enjoy that time, that solitude, Right. All of who we know to be our our prophets and sort of great people really, really appreciated solitude and silence. Yes. Right. Yes. And so if I can sit with that and the silence doesn't sort of trigger insecurities. Right. Or feelings of being abandoned. Right. Then I can enjoy it. Right. I can appreciate that. But if Mm -hmm. that feeling of sort of being alone then causes me to, you know, have, be very self-critical or, you know, mm. to, to really tap into insecurity or abandonment or neglect, right? Then that's when yeah. it's a problem. Yes. Right. So I think, okay. That's yeah. a very important distinction to make, I think. Yes. Yes. So just coming back to when you said about embracing your true self, you know, hear this. And I always, I mean, for me, I've definitely gone through I would say, this feels like therapy on the podcast, actually. But anyway, I'm going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely gone through like a phase where, where you know, I always thought, you know, maybe I'm too much for people or maybe I'm like mm. this. But I thought, you know what? I, I remember reading, there's a palliative nurse. She deals with people at the end of their life. And she kind mm-hmm. of asked them, which, what, what are your top five, di- what is your kind of regret in life? 
Mm. And a recurring one which, which came number one was, I wish I lived a life which was more true to myself. Mm. And that was like a recurring theme for sort of several, I think it was like a, at least a couple hundred people, she asked the same question and they said the same yeah. thing. So I was going to ask, where does that come from? Why is it that, why do you think people are regretting that they, they did not live a life true to themselves? Because it's terrifying. Right. Mm. Because of our desire for connection and for belonging, we might alter, right, who we are or who we say we are at, Mm. you know, because of that desire, right? We want to be accepted. We want to be included. And so do we risk alienation, right? Again, thinking about it Mm. from an evolutionary standpoint, do we risk alienation and exclusion, right? by voicing what we think might be unpopular, right? Mm-hmm. By acknowledging aspects of ourselves that may cause discomfort with other people, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of large and small ways that we're, we're socialized to perhaps mute those aspects of ourselves that we think other people would not approve of, mm-hmm. right? And the reward for, for muting those things, right, is the inclusion. It comes at a price, okay. right? But we feel like, well, I can't be all of who I am, but at least I have sort of this sense of belonging that offsets that discomfort. Okay. Right. Wow. But at the end of life, right, there's, you know, it's called Erickson. Eric Erickson has this this theory of identity development that looks at sort of later in life. It's called generativity versus stagnation. Right. Okay. And so for for elders, especially, and I think this is why the connection to young people are so important. Because as people mm-hmm. get older, they start to wonder, did, did I matter, right? And who did I matter to, mm. right? And if I wasn't my true self, then what will people remember of me? Okay, right? yes. And so when Ooh. I see people contemplate, like, have I been authentic? Have I been sincere? Did I take risks and allow people to really see me, right? Or did wow. I project yeah. this persona that wasn't real, Right. So, you know, you may think, well, when I'm eulogized, would I even recognize myself (laughs) based on what people say? And so I think as we get older and perhaps we shed some of the fear, right, of around authenticity, we really, really want to feel feel seen in an honest way, right? But that takes first, I would say, introspection. It takes, you know, kind of like a radical self-awareness so that we can withstand pressure to conform, right? And push back and say, there's some aspects perhaps of being a part of a communal collective society, but there are also some aspects that often requires conformity, right? Yes, of course. And are we comfortable with saying, you know, I want to, again, find the balance between belonging, right? And being who I truly am. And I I think think that's a lifelong question. I think absolutely. I mean, there's so much more I want to unpack with you. So I definitely think I'm going to have to have you on again. Because actually, it's funny. I came into this conversation wanting to speak specifically about black psychology, but our <laughs> conversation was absolutely beautiful. This was a healing session for me, and I hope that it's for many others out oh, there. This has been beautiful. I'm going to post social medias in the comments and the bios. Please check out Dr. Kamala's beautiful Twitter feed that you find a lot of information on there and reach out. This has been the Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Please like, comment, subscribe, whether you're listening to on Spotify or YouTube or Apple Podcasts. Until next time, peace out, guys.